So I think everyone would agree planning for your future is important. But where do you even begin? What makes the most sense for your situation? And when should you start planning? Hint, probably right now. Some people think managing money is easy. This is a podcast for the rest of us. Talking about this stuff can be intimidating, which is why TuneIn has teamed up with U.S. Bank to create this podcast series. Our goal is to introduce ideas, tell stories, and give you some tips to help improve your financial IQ. Welcome to The Safe Space, brought to you by U.S. Bank. Hey everyone, Kelly Sutton here. On the pod today, we are joined by experts and special guests to talk about planning for your future. First off, Cheddar News anchor Hope King will sit down with certified financial education instructor Balisha Kunbi, the CEO and founder of Clever Girl Finance. Next, Casey Rotter, friend of the pod and founder of UNICEF Next Generation, will offer some advice on planned giving and why it's important to think about the legacy you want to leave on our world. Our friend Josh Modell from TalkHouse is back. He's talking to Sean Nelson, the lead singer of Harvey Danger, about some of the woulda, coulda, shouldas after finally landing that lump sum for his hit song, Flagpole Sitta. And money girl Laura Adams is back with a few tips just for you. So far on The Safe Space, we've covered a bunch of topics to help you manage your finances in the here and now. But strap on your jetpacks, safe spacers, because we're about to set you up for financial success in the future. Planning for your financial future is so important. We all want to make sure that we're financially secure and have enough money to live the lifestyle that we want to live. But how do you even start taking those necessary steps right now to save without skimping and make a solid plan that's going to set you up for a strong foundation for the future. Thankfully, our friend Hope King from Cheddar News sat down with money expert and best-selling author Bola Shokunbi to address some of our concerns. Really excited to hear more about what she has to say. So let's send it over to Hope and Bola. Great to be back, Kelly, and excited to team up with TuneIn and U.S. Bank to help create the Save Space podcast. Cheddar's hopping on this week to break down your financial future and build up your financial IQ. Joining us now to help you save for your biggest money milestones is Bola Shokumbi, the founder and author of Clever Girl Finance. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's get into this. What tips do you have to help people pay off their student loans faster because we've all got them now. Yeah, so the average college student is coming out with about $40,000 in student loans. So it's a big issue that affects most people. And when it comes to paying it down, the first thing you want to do is understand what all the student loans you have are. So you can pull a copy of your credit report to see everything that you may not remember that you signed up for while you were in college. You also want to get a sense of what are the interest rates that you have on each of your loans? Are they fixed? Are they variable? And knowing this information will help you create a strategy as to how to prioritize paying down your loans. But the key here is making sure that you try as best as you can to pay more than your minimum student loan payment. And a key tip is that when you make extra payments towards your student loans, you want to make sure that your extra payment is being designated towards your principal balance because many lenders will default that extra payment towards interest and then you will look at your statements and wonder why your principal balance is not going down. So that's one thing you want to make sure that you do if you're making extra payments. Now, I wanted to start with the paying off of student loans because when we talk about saving for the future, really you have to 
balance out what you owe and what you can actually afford to set aside. So it's, of course, extremely important to figure out the, the best tactic here. So sort of before we even start saving, we have to make sure we have this plan. Now, you mentioned that there are different kinds of rates. How do you know which rate is right for you? So the cheapest rate is right for you. <laughs> Ideally, if you're looking to sign on to a student loan, you want to look for the cheapest rate that is fixed. And the issue with variable rates is that you cannot determine what they will vary to, right? So you may get a really low rate right now, but in two years or in two months, it could be much higher. And the biggest cost implication around student loans is the interest that's being charged, and that is being compounded and capitalized on your principal balance. So focus on getting the lowest rates and preferably fixed. And you can secure that ahead of time as well. So you can look ahead and figure out what might be right for you. Yeah, absolutely. You want to, you know, as you're thinking about going to school and getting financing to support that education, you definitely want to look at all your options in terms of financing. So looking at federal loans, looking at private loans, comparing, you know, the different options and making sure you have a good big picture view of what will work best for your situation. So if you were to rank the factors and choose a loan. Cheap, fixed rate, number one. And then is the grace period, is the deference? I mean, how would you weigh when you're comparing loans, which factors are most important? Well, definitely the cheapest because <laughs> it's going to cost you less over the long term in interest. And then you also want to keep in mind, you know, when you think about things like deferment, right, it gives you the opportunity to push your push paying your loans back if you don't have a job. Um, some loans will give you the option of income-based repayment where you can adjust your payments based on your income. So depending on your situation, you might want to prioritize what's most important to you, but definitely start with the interest rate um, and also ask them what are the fees associated with me paying off my loans early with me wanting to consolidate this debt, it's important to know those things as, you know, your top priority items that you're looking for. Yeah, I think many people may not know that there are these options where you can adjust your payment based on your income or you can, depending on the provider, actually have a grace period that's maybe longer or shorter. So exactly. for those of you who might be planning on taking time off after you graduate or if you know that it takes time for your income to ramp up, that might actually be a good option. Yes, Okay, good to know. Now, what about when it comes to savings? And you, like, let's say, have a good plan in place. Now, you have that plan in place to pay it off, but then there's still things to save for. So if you have to look at your life and you look at your big milestones, like getting married, like buying a house, is there one that you should prioritize over the other? How do you actually map out for the savings part of your life? So that's a great question, and it really depends on your unique life situation. So ideally, everyone should be saving for the long term, for retirement, for, you know, age 65 or whatever age it is that you choose to retire or you're aiming to retire, even if it means retiring early. So that should definitely be one goal that we all have because at the end of the day, um, there's nobody waiting for you with a bottle of champagne and a mansion on the beach saying, hey, I did this for you. <laughs> so that should be on your list. Um, in terms of your other goals, like midterm, you know, short-term goals, getting married, having kids, kids, buying a home, you really want to prioritize what's most important to you. And once you have that priority list, then you can start to assign dates to when you want to save an amount and get really specific and then set up your accounts according to each of these goals. One thing to be mindful, though, is that you don't want to overwhelm yourself with trying to pursue too many goals at the same time. So it's, you know, a good idea to have about 
two to three goals, maximum of five goals that you're working towards, and then you prioritize your savings deposits or your investment deposits towards those goals according to how, you know, how important each goal is and when your due date is for each goal. I was going to say, I mean, it is very daunting when you are trying to go to school, when you're trying to make money, and then you have all of these people telling you, you got to save early, you got to save for all of these things. Do you think it's possible to save for all of them at the same time? You know, and, and should you really do it? I think that it's prioritization that really matters. And it's important to remember what is most important to you. And so when you're thinking about laying out your goals and prioritizing your savings plans, you want to make sure that you're doing them in alignment with the things that matter to you. Because at the end of the day, the whole point of saving all this money is to get to the point where you're happy, right? And you're achieving the things that you desire. So let's break it down even further. Do you then save at a smaller amount every week or every month toward that goal? How do you actually budget so that it actually accumulates and you're still saving? Great question. So it's important to start with the amount first. Like with weddings, a wedding can cost you $10,000 or a million dollars if you really want it to. So start with what you plan to spend first and then break it down by your timeline and build that breakdown into your budget. Got it. So how much it costs first and then timeline. Now, what about the types of accounts? I mean, should you be separating all of this into a wedding fund and a, you know, a house account, a house savings account? Do you recommend that or is there a way that you recommend separating everything? Ideally, having separate accounts helps you stay clear on your goal and you can track each goal's progress independently. And this doesn't mean that you need to have these separate accounts in like 10 different banks. You can have them as different account categories at the same bank, right? When it comes to these accounts, you just want to make sure that you're not tapping into them for non-goal related items or like having fun and doing things like that. And you also want to make sure that you are making your deposits consistently according to your priority um, so that you can see the progress and you can track how far away you are from the target that you've set for yourself. Okay, so you do recommend having separate accounts. Yes. And you're a big advocate of actually having multiple streams of income. How do you how do you do that in life? Yes. So, you know, multiple streams of income is something that you can build up to gradually, right? So for instance, your first stream of income, your active stream of income is what you earn from your employer. You could have another stream of income, which could be a part-time job um, or a side hustle. You could have another stream of income uh, through your investments and earning dividends and from compounding interest on your investments, like for instance, your retirement accounts. Um, and so there are different ways that you can generate multiple streams of income. Um, and it's all about building it up. So if you're already contributing to retirement investing over time, you'll start to see an income stream there. If you're working full time and you start a side hustle or you even sell things that you own that you don't need anymore, you'll start to be able to, you know, generate some income that way. So it's all about getting creative as to what are the different ways in which I can um, add more sources of income to my bottom line. So we talked about budgeting money, but then how do you budget your time if you've got to make sure you have these multiple streams, but it, it is a lot of work. Exactly. So, you know, when it comes to income streams, the goal is to have more passive income streams than active income streams. And so an active income stream is where you're actually exchanging your time for money. So you're sitting at your desk every day at work, whereas a passive income stream is where, you know, your money's just working and you're just checking it. <laughs> All right, set so, it forget it. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, focusing more on your investments um, will help you bring more passive income streams. All right. And it seems like you've got a lot of things that you're working on and 
how do you keep it all straight? Is there any piece of technology that helps you with your budgeting, either whether it's time or it's money? Well, I'm a spreadsheet girl. <laughs> <laughs> so I plan out my budget in my spreadsheet. I'm a huge fan of automating. You know, even though I use a spreadsheet, I automate my transfers to my savings accounts, to, to pay my bills, to my investment accounts. And that not only helps me save time, but there are studies that show that people who automate save and invest more on average than people who don't. Amazing. Learned so much today, and I'm going to open up my spreadsheet after we go off of this. <laughs> Bola, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you. Bola Shakombi is the founder and author of Clever Girl Finance. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks so much, Hope and Bola. That was some great advice for how to think about saving for your short-term versus your long-term goals. Also really helpful tips for ways to pay off your student loans even faster. I bet many of our listeners are dealing with that 500-pound gorilla on their backs. So the more that we can guide you toward chipping away at that student loan debt, well, the sooner you can start planning for what lies ahead. A big part of planning for your future is not only considering how to spend your money while you're on this planet, but also thinking about what kind of legacy that you want to leave on our world. It's all a part of the financial planning bucket called planned giving. And here to tell us more about it is our next guest. Casey Rotter is the founder of UNICEF Next Generation. Casey's joining us to talk about social responsibility as a growing trend. So Casey, tell us a little bit more about UNICEF. I know we've seen the commercials, people have heard UNICEF probably their entire life, but give us the foundation, what is UNICEF? UNICEF is the United Nations Children's Fund. It was an organization started after World War II to take care of the world's children. There were a lot of UN-related organizations that were doing other things, and then a group of women actually got together in the U.S. and said, hey, what's going on with orphan children or displaced children from the war? Who's matching them, trying to find them with their parents or with their families? Just started with blankets and milk. And now it's the world's leading humanitarian organization for children. It's in over 152 countries and territories doing whatever it takes to save and improve children's lives before, during, and after an emergency. And I think most people have heard of us with Trick or Treat for UNICEF or they know mm -hmm. that we do something good for kids. But I think because we do so much um, and we do everything from water and sanitation, HIV and AIDS, health and protection, nutrition, education, it's hard for people to really understand what it is that we do. But basically anything that a child needs globally, we're there doing whatever it takes to save and improve their lives. And you have founded UNICEF Next Generation, this program that is really reaching the next generation, letting them know about UNICEF and helping them get involved. How did this become your passion project? I look back now, it's been, I think, over 13 years ago, and it's amazing to me where it's become, but I grew up trick-or-treating for UNICEF, so UNICEF was part of my life as a child at the University of Wisconsin. I was part of our UNICEF club, and then when I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to give back in some way, and I found a program at NYU that was nonprofit management and fundraising and philanthropy, and so one thing that I was finding when I was studying there was that many organizations uh, were panicking about having an aging donor base. And I had started interning at UNICEF USA and uh, did an age overlay of our database and found that our average donor at UNICEF was 63 years old. My research for my thesis was how to engage your next generation of supporters. And I used UNICEF USA as a case study. 
And you basically took this to the president of UNICEF and said, hey, look at what I'm working on. I think you should implement this. And they did. Absolutely. Yeah, I look back. I have no idea how um, Carol Stern, the president of UNICEF USA, uh, listened to a 24-year-old intern who walked into her office with a piece (laughs) of paper. But I'm very grateful that she did. Um, And now we've uh, raised over $13 million for UNICEF since we launched and um, influenced an additional $20 for kids globally. Tell people how they can learn more about UNICEF NextGen. How do you join? Wonderful. Well, we look at it as choose your own adventure. The lowest level you can join is uh, it starts at a $20 a month donation, and you can go to our website um, at UNICEFUSA backslash NextGen. And that donation, uh, you get to vote on what NextGen projects we're adopting. So we come together studying issues that are affecting children and then choose a UNICEF project that kind of resonates or is, um, you know, interesting or the, has the type of impact that our NextGen members want to have in the world. So any fundraising, educational events, pop-up talks, and so on and so forth um, are all focused around that specific project. Until we hit our goal and move on to our next project. And then we have other levels to join and get more involved, a little bit more hands-on if there are things you want to plan in your community. If you want to advocate on behalf of UNICEF and children's rights, we kind of do trainings and set up meetings with senators and figure out how we can make a difference in your own communities for kids and globally. And we have a leadership board as well. Let's take a step back just a little bit and talk just about charitable giving as a whole. For people that are in a position to donate, what are some of the things they really need to do to evaluate the charity that they're giving to? There are really great nonprofits and other organizations that are managing this. And so I would definitely um, encourage everyone when they're thinking about it, one, start with your values and figure out what it is that, what difference do you want to make on this world and and how do you want to do that? And so is that of your time, your money? I encourage both um, often. And, and then um, do your research uh, like you would with any other, you know, investment that you're making. Go to Charity Navigator and see what your organization is rated. Um, you can see all organizations' 990s. You can understand what the CEO is making, what the top um, fundraisers are making, and um, how much of, the, of what they're raising actually goes to the program on the ground. Um, I would also encourage everyone to check out Better Business Bureau and see the rating of the organization there and make sure that it's an accredited organization that... Um, abides by all IRS standards. Um, And then also you do your uh, research on the leadership and make sure that there are people that you believe in and believe um, have the best, uh, the mission at heart and want to move that forward. Uh, I'd say to start there at least. Definitely some good links right there for people to look into. In this episode of Save Space, we're talking all about planning your future. And many people are considering maybe leaving money to a nonprofit in their will. So I hear the term planned giving. Are there benefits to planned giving versus donating over time? Absolutely. And I would actually say it's not an either or. It's kind of where you are and what you want to get out of it and what kind of impact you want to have now and into the future. Um, a lot of our largest gifts at UNICEF um, that are left in, when people leave the remainder of their estate to UNICEF or they leave a specific amount, a lot of times um, that's their largest gift and that's kind of their their lifetime gift, that the legacy that they want to leave. But many of those people that are leaving significant gifts to us in their wills are also the people that are giving to us monthly. And so, um, you know, and whatever you feel, I think I talk to people and say, okay, sit down with your finances, talk to a financial advisor, if you have it or manage your own finances and sit down and say, okay, 
where, what do I need, you know, to live the life that I want to live? Um, what do I have? Where, what do my children need if I have them? If I don't have children, um, I would, you know, people think you have to be older to have a will. Um, I, right now, um, I have UNICEF is left in my retirement plan. That's the beneficiary of my retirement plan right now. And that's, for me, it's, I don't, I don't have children and there are tax benefits to doing that for me. And so I would say to encourage people to look at what they can give now, but then in addition, kind of plan for where they, you know, what is their lifetime gift that they want? What is the legacy that they might want to leave? Um, and kind of do the math that way to see if it's something that you can leave into the the future or if there's more that you can give now. A lot of families believe in um, spending down if they want to create a foundation and they want to see the impact in their lifetime. Others believe that, you know, they can do more if that's a sustained long-term gift um, that is set up in a trust. And so there are many different blended ways to be giving now and into the future, and so it kind of just depends on where you're at um, in your own personal life, family life, Um, And then what your goals are and what kind of impact you'd like to have now and into the future. Now, beyond the impact of worthwhile organizations and nonprofits, what are some of the more immediate and, let's say, tangible financial benefits to charitable giving? You're giving, but you're going to get something back in return financially. Yes. So there are numerous tax incentives, and those are, you know, um, changing depending on federal, state, and local um, government laws. So I would definitely um, suggest that people talk to their financial advisors to see if that's something that would be, um, you know, beneficial for them and and how that exactly works. There are also really great benefits to donating um, things outside of cash. So stocks and securities, um, there's tax incentives to do that as well. And then on the older end of the spectrum, um, there are incentives to donate your IRA. And there are different ways that the, you know, the government recognizes um, that charity and nonprofits were set up to solve some of the social problems that might not be taken care of by the government. So there are incentives to um, to get people to be paying attention to that and to really use their blended finances for good. I love the thought of that. So, Casey, where do you see the future of charitable giving going? I see it just completely blended or hopefully blended with everyday life, with everyday business. You know, it surprises me when a new business pops up that's not thinking about their um, corporate social responsibility or, um, you know, if their packaging is um, is conscious or, you know, biodegradable. I think it's really interesting and I think it's more of an outlier nowadays when a company is not thinking in that realm from the get-go. And so I think hopefully we'll just get to a, a point in time where philanthropy and normal ways of doing business are blended in a way that is is taking the whole world into account when you're also trying to profit. Casey, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. You're making such a huge impact, and and we just can't thank you enough for starting NextGen and for joining us here on Save Space. Thank you, Kelly. I know that sometimes it can be hard to think about the future. I mean, who wants to think about where their money will go when they're gone? However, it is pretty cool to think about the legacy you'll leave. And I know, as a parent, I want to leave the world a better place for my daughter and for future generations. After the break, we welcome TalkHouse's Josh Modell back to the podcast. And then we'll circle back with our resident expert, money girl, Laura Adams. She's got a few tips on how to plan for your financial future. So stick around. This episode of the Save Space podcast is brought to you by U.S. Bank. For everyone working toward their goal, U.S. Bank is there to help. Whether you're starting a business or dealing with unexpected expenses, U.S. Bank wants to help you grow your financial IQ so you can handle whatever life throws at you. 
From personal finance to business strategies, access free resources that will help you improve your financial literacy. There's something for everyone. Visit usbank.com slash financial IQ or just tell your smart speaker, enable grow your financial IQ. Okay, let's get back to the safe space. Welcome back, safe spacers. Our friend Josh Modell from TalkHouse is back. TalkHouse is the only media outlet where all of the writing and podcasting is done exclusively by musicians, actors, and filmmakers. And Josh has a really interesting interview for us today. Definitely. Hey, Kelly. Today's segment is fascinating. I wouldn't say it's about planning your future as much as it is a lesson on what to avoid. So this one's like a cautionary tale. Indeed it is. And it should be a fun conversation for our listeners who love 90s nostalgia. Oh, I love the 90s. Okay, tell us who it is. I'm almost certain that you'll remember the band Harvey Danger, or if you don't remember the name, you'll remember their song Flagpole Sitta, which was everywhere in the 90s. I remember this song. It reminds me of this horror movie from the era called The Faculty. So my guest today is Sean Nelson, the singer of Harvey Danger. I wanted to talk with Sean about planning for the future because I feel like those artists who have one big hit tend to exemplify either how to plan for the future or how not to. (laughs) Okay, well, let's hear Sean's story. So the topic here is planning your future with regard to money. And I guess with you at the beginning with Harvey Danger, is it safe to assume that you weren't giving a ton of thought about how to make a living from music when you started doing it? Definitely not at all. The first four years we were together, I think the most money we ever made for anything was, I think, $200. We got paid for one show. But generally speaking, you would play shows and and not get paid at all or get paid, you know, like $30 or something. You know, money just seemed like uh, sort of a a rumor, you know, like (laughs) this thing you knew existed in the world. And if you kept doing your thing, you might like trip and fall into a pile of it, which is in fact kind of what happened to us. (laughs) I mean, I was 21 when I joined the band, or 20, I guess, I was 20. And so the idea of like, what are you going to do with your life was still a distant enough prospect that it wasn't something that kept me up at night very much. But what I always wanted was to have some kind of life as a performer or writer or something like that. But it was a little bit vague because I had already dropped out of uh, film school, uh, or NYU, I was studying film and theater, actually. Mm. Um, I dropped out, and so I definitely had that feeling of like, oh, well, I guess I blew that. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, music came along, and it was, you know, Seattle in the early 90s, and everybody I met was in a band, and I thought, well, I'll just be in a band. And nobody was concerned with, you know, making money, that's for sure. And then, as you sort of alluded to, you had a hit unexpectedly. Yeah. If you're okay with talking about it, I guess I'm wondering about how having kind of a huge hit like that changes your life financially. I can't believe you have the nerve to bring that up. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was a quantum difference. You know, we went from four years of living, we all lived in the same house together, and, you know, we all had sort of jobs, but not like career jobs. We all had like okay jobs doing stuff that we were interested in. But by the time we were in our sort of early mid-20s, it was like, oh, wait a minute. If I keep this job, does that mean I have to do this for the rest of my life? That sort of thing. But then the band was the thing that we all just loved to do. And there was sort of no... It had gotten to a point where we had been asking the question, well, why are we doing this anymore if this is all it is, you know, because we worked so hard on it. And the reason was always because we actually love doing it. So then the song became a hit 
and we got a record deal. And even though it was the 90s when signing a major label record deal was frowned upon kind of culturally, it was pretty much what everybody we knew secretly wanted. <laughs> and we secretly wanted it. And so, I don't know, we, we started making money. We started making big piles of money. And we also started having to spend huge piles of money. I remember a check that we received that was an advance on our publishing deal. It was a check for $750,000. Wow. And it was made out to Harvey Danger. And I had this sort of, you know, I mean, $750,000, even now is a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, at that point in our lives, it didn't seem like it could possibly be real. But then, you know, you start doing some math. So the 750 grand, the first thing you take out is... 42% 42% taxes. Mm. So that's that's almost half of it. Then 10% for the lawyer, then 15% for the manager. So that's 65% of it is gone right off the top. Then you divide it four ways because we divided everything four ways. And it's still a lot of money. I mean, it's still way more money than I had ever made or imagined making. And even if you were to kind of work backwards from there to all the years we'd spent working on the band and not getting paid and all of that stuff, it still wound up being a nice dollar. But you then realize you're not going to get paid any more from that department Mm. for some time until you earn out this deal, which, in fact, we didn't do until like two years ago. Oh, wow. So basically, if you stretch out my share, which was roughly $115,000, if you spread that out over 19 years, it's not that much, really. But right. uh, but you get it in one chunk and you suddenly feel like a Rockefeller, you know? Did you learn anything over the years about money that you wish you had known when you were first starting out? Yeah. I mean, buy a house, Because it's always going to be more expensive 10 years from now when you wish you had bought it, you know? That's the only thing I know. I I still haven't bought a house because (sighs) I didn't make that choice. The only time I ever had plenty of money was right then when Harvey Nager signed its various deals in the late 90s. If I had been smart, I would have done it. But the fear, we were all of that kind of mode where it was like, sometimes you had to cash your paycheck at one of those check cashing places because your bank account was overdrawn by $5 or whatever, you know? That was our reality right up until probably a year before we signed our record deal. So that's kind of where we were coming from, and that's certainly where I was coming from. I just wanted to make sure that I could pay the rent. And the idea of taking the risk and buying a house and putting down a huge down payment and then blowing it somehow and mm. not having enough money to make my mortgage and having it all fall apart, that just seemed too likely at that time. Even though now, the idea of having bought a house 20 years ago in Seattle, I mean, I'd be the king of the moon, you know? I'd be so rich. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly, a big thanks is owed to Sean for talking with us for this segment. Hearing his story was super helpful and I totally understand where he's coming from. His story, is a warning, but in listening to him tell it, I feel like I can't necessarily blame him for making some of those decisions in retrospect that maybe weren't in his best interest. Right? I love how Sean says that he would be king of the moon if he bought that house in Seattle 20 years ago. I love that too. I don't exactly know what king of the moon means, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. The hindsight of not taking a financial risk. 
Well, you know what? Thank you for another great segment, Josh. Thanks for having me back, Kelly. And listeners, please do yourselves a favor and check out Talk House and the Talk House podcast. They have tons of personal essays and podcast episodes, including many where musicians, actors, and filmmakers talk finance. Till next time, Josh. Thanks, Kelly. We've covered so much already, and I've learned so much. It's incredible. I really wish this podcast existed years ago. But guess what? We're not slowing down. My next guest is no stranger to our dedicated listeners of The Save Space. She's an author, a host, and she has the award-winning podcast, The Money Girl. Please welcome my new friend, Laura Adams. Good to see you again. Hey, good to see you. Okay, so we're talking about planning for the future. It really does sound daunting, and I'm not sure where to start. I mean, what should we be planning for now? How far in advance? What are some of the must that we really need to have on paper and start looking at? So the must is start early, right? This is something that you can't make up for lost time, right? So this is something I always tell young people, don't get afraid, don't think, oh, I'll just start when I get that raise or that bonus or things are tight now, I can't do it. You can do it and you just have to start now. So starting now means that you're going to take advantage of the compounding effect. And that means your money is going to grow more than if you just started late because you can't catch up if you start really late. Um, So this is key. Start now, even if it's small amounts. So you're saying even if you're just doing a tiny little fraction, it's going to add up in the long run. Yeah, it's really the habit of saving and putting away money that is more powerful than the amount. So if you think about what can I do? Is it $50 a month? Is it even 20 months? Something is better than nothing. So you've just got to get started, even if it feels painful and it feels like you can't do it. You can. Okay. The rainy day fund. I remember my grandmother talking about that. What's a good way to determine how much you should have set aside? I mean, if we're looking at you're in a situation where you've lost your job and all of a sudden everything comes crashing down, how do you prepare for that? How much do you need in that nest egg? Yeah. So that's the emergency fund that we're, we've been talking about. Three to six months worth of your living expenses is kind of the rule of thumb. And a lot of people say, oh my gosh, that's so much. And if it is a lot for you, start with one month. Start with $500. And your living expenses aren't equal to salary. Think about what you really would need. You know, your rent, the bills, food, all of those things that you need to live. That's what you're going to think about What's that total? Multiply it by three, multiply it by six. That is your like big time goal. And yes, it might take you a few years to get there. That's okay. Yeah, you feel like you're kind of taking one step forward, two steps back sometimes. But as long as you have that in place, then at least you have a goal. That's it. And as you said, if if something happens, you lose your job, you lose your business income, you've got that nice financial cushion that makes that fall not quite so hard. Ugh. We all need that extra cushion sometimes. I think a lot of people see plan and future and finance, and they immediately just start thinking retirement. So they're thinking 401k or some way that they're going to be able to live once they decide to retire. But they're missing out on other key aspects. It's not now and then. There's a whole lot in between. Yeah, so it comes down to priorities. For some people, they want to buy a home. They want to put kids through college. There are all these other things that we have to 
really allocate money for. Um, so figure out what is your priority. I mean, that's number one. If you don't know, if you really don't have that target, you're never going to reach it. So talking with your family, your significant other, um, if you have those folks that are sharing goals with you, make sure you're on the same page. And, you know, if you don't have confidence about what the future looks like, it can feel hard. It can feel yeah. really difficult, you know, and, and so it can it can feel far away. And yeah, your plans can change. You know, you might have a dream right now and that can change down the road and that's okay, but you got to start somewhere. Um, so having, again, this habit of saving for the long term and even having those short-term priorities, that's key. Get those in place, short-term and long-term goals. Okay, so this is where I'm sitting right now. I've got a 10-year-old, so I'm still a long ways off before we're talking about college, but I know it's coming. And we're also trying to think about our future and retirement. How do you do both at the same time? In my mind, it's hard for me to figure out I can do both and still split my money, or does it need to go in five different places? How do I do all of that at once? Yeah, Kelly, that's probably the biggest question that I get. It's how do I balance? How do I prioritize? How do I know what to work on first? And I do have a bit of a rule there. And I think that if you are not saving for your own retirement, if you don't have that kind of automated and on autopilot, that is key. So let's say you've got a little emergency fund going, I'm going to assume that, and then you're on, on track for retirement, then you want to save for kids' college. If you put all your money in your kids' college fund and you don't have any for your own retirement, guess what? They're going to be taking care of you in retirement. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You're exactly right. There are student loans. There are ways for kids to work it out, right? Mm -hmm. They can get scholarships. They can get grants. There are all these things available for kids. There are no scholarships for retirement. There are no, you know, loans for retirement. You have to do that on your own. So, you know, having that retirement plan and, and making sure that's in place, if you do a great job, then when your kids are out of school, if they do have to get loans, that's when you can say, okay, I can afford to help them pay off those loans. But until, you know, you've got that retirement in place, don't sacrifice it on just focusing on kids' college. There are no loans for retirement. There are no scholarships for retirement. I love that. I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind. You know, a lot of us are doing these small steps. They're trying to make sure that they're going in the right direction. And I think one of the steps that we really need to talk about is how to start this conversation. And it's not just a conversation that you have with yourself. It's a conversation that you're having with your family, whether it's your significant other or it's even talking to your parents sometimes, which can be so strange. So how do we take this great, big, scary, taboo subject and break it down and start to have those conversations? Yeah. So, you know, one way is maybe have them listen to this podcast. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Perfect. Listen together or recommend it. You know, there's so much good information out there. But, you know, I also think telling stories is a great way to teach. So, you know, whether it's something like, hey, I just found a new way to save money and I'm doing this, you know, have you ever thought about that? Or, wow, um, I just opened a retirement account. Is that something that, you know, that you've ever done? Or, you know, any way that you can turn your personal situation and, and turn it into a story to start a conversation, that can make it a little bit more comfortable. And you talked about parents, too. I mean, this is an issue. A lot of people out there are finding that their parents are struggling, and so they're having to help their parents, and they've got kids of their own that they're trying to, to save for. And so it's this sandwich generation. So, you know, 
we do have to really think about what are the ways that we can talk to the people that we love about the future. If your parents are not in a good situation, you know, eventually it's going to come back to roost and you're probably going to have to help them out. So having those conversations early rather than later is the key. And especially if there are memory issues involved with older Mm, parents, getting things like living wills and healthcare directives and powers of attorney and all that in place before they really have any aging or cognitive problems is key. Otherwise, it's going to be really complicated. Staying in the lane of difficult situations and difficult topics to broach, let's talk about having that tragedy if it does happen. I mean, nobody wants to think about that. Truly, it's an awful situation to be put in. But is there a plan or is there a way that we should be saving in case something does happen to your significant other, to your parent, to your child. Oh, heaven forbid. But if something like that does happen, how do you start to save for something like that? Yeah. So this emergency fund that we've been talking about, that's part of it. That's part of why you do it. Also, if you've got retirement assets built up, that's something that can be passed along to your heirs if you're no longer around. So think about that. I mean, it it would move on to those folks who are your beneficiaries. And another way is definitely life insurance. I mean, this is something that sounds super boring, but life insurance can give huge peace of mind. And a term policy might only cost a couple hundred of dollars a year for pretty significant coverage. So this is something that, you know, everybody needs to have. If you've got any type of, uh, let's say, a spouse or a dependent who is depending on you financially or physically, you definitely need to have life insurance, especially if you're a one-income family. Maybe you've got, you know, somebody at home with the kids and one person that's out working. Think about what would happen if that one income were lost. Even that person at home has a real value if you had to go out and pay for childcare. So both parents need that coverage. Well, we're in the middle of a family tragedy, Laura. That is the worst time to not know some of the key elements. And I know it's a hard conversation to have, but a lot of us don't know the plans our parents have set into place. So how do you broach that topic with your parents about wills and their estate planning and what they want to have happen once they pass on. It's so critical. And as we mentioned, you know, if if they've got cognitive issues, you got to do it sooner rather than later. But don't think that this is something you can just put off and say, oh, we'll just talk about it when mom and dad get older. Um, You know, these issues can come up. You never know what might occur. So asking about what documents they have in place, I think I think you really do have to plan it. And I do think you have to talk with any siblings that are involved too and get together as a family and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about for mom and dad. Here are my concerns. Here's what I'm I'm hoping to do maybe in the future and have a plan about how you would want to tackle that. Some people may live close to them and want to like take care of them physically. Other people may be more in terms of like administration and, and want to help out in that way. So getting together with siblings is key and really just making it stress-free. And I would say try to do it in a time where you're low-key, you know, you're not stressed. Don't wait till Christmas. (laughs) Or the holidays when everybody is kind of like on edge. Yeah. You know, plan another time where you can get together in, in a more relaxed environment. So all of these things are ways that we can beef up the way that we have confidence in our life and Mm -hmm. give us security. It's peace of mind. I mean, that's really what finances are all about. It's not just about making money. It's about using those dollars to give us confidence and to give us peace of mind that so, so we can live more fully 
and be happy. And reduce that stress. Mm -hmm. Mm, I love it. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really great information. You guys, if you haven't had that conversation with your parents yet, make sure you get on it. Better safe than sorry. Laura, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you making it easier on us to broach the tough topics and to get our own financial plans sorted out early and often. All right, we're at the end of another informative episode of the Safe Space Podcast. We've covered a lot. Planning your future is something that you need to take care of, but it's easy to procrastinate. However, I'm hoping our experts really give you the info you need to create a plan. I want to thank all of our incredible guests and contributors again for taking the time to sit down with us today and offer their insight and expertise. A big thank you to Bola Shokumbi and Cheddar News anchor Hope King. Thanks to Casey Rotter for sharing her sound advice. If you enjoyed our conversation, check out unicefusa.org slash nextgen for more info. The stuff they're doing is truly inspiring. Thanks again to Sean Nelson from Harvey Danger and TalkHouse host Josh Modell. And of course, I want to thank our guest and my good friend, Laura Adams, for sitting down with us. Be sure to check her out on the Money Girl podcast, available on TuneIn and wherever you listen to podcasts. We want to thank U.S. Bank for making all of this possible. Remember, you can always head to usbank.com slash financial IQ for any questions that you have about money. No matter how big or small your concerns, they've got a ton of resources that will help you make sense of it all. The Safe Space is hosted by me, Kelly Sutton, produced at TuneIn Studios by Charles Raggio and Jenner Pasqua, sound engineered and edited by Kevin Kurigian, with additional support from Joyce Reiser, Stratton Easter, Aaron Fredman, and Andrew Broadhead. Please be sure to subscribe so you can get alerted to all of our future episodes when they drop. And don't forget to like, comment, and share with all your friends and family. On the next episode of The Safe Space, we'll be talking about financial independence. I think it was William Wallace who said it best. They may take our lives, but they will never take our financial freedom. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>